Hey friends, my name is Nathan Holritz, and I want to welcome you to A Love Portrait, a podcast picturing happy relationships. I'm absolutely fascinated by the psychology that drives intimate relationships with friends, with family, or with a romantic partner. And so out of that curiosity comes this podcast. Join me, if you will, in conversation with all kinds of lovely people as we explore what they have learned about how to create happy relationships with those closest to them. All right, welcome to or back to the Love Portrait Podcast and uh, one of the inaugural episodes. And I'm here with my uh, relatively new friends, Charity and Andrew. Thank you all so much for making time to share with our listeners. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and th- I'm particularly excited about, first of all, the topic of conversation that we're going to get to a little bit later uh, today in this episode, but also because I've got an interesting twist to this conversation and that we have uh, somebody who is who does therapy professionally, uh, marriage and family therapist, Andy, is that correct? Yeah, I work downtown in Phoenix as a marriage, licensed marriage and family therapist. Well, and, and what I find particularly interesting about that is, uh, especially when it comes to conversations around romantic relationships, which is what we're going to delve into today, uh, to have kind of that professional opinion is, is wonderful, number one. But then I always find it interesting when I get an opportunity to talk to a couple where you have a therapist involved in that relationship and, and to, to, to ask a little bit about how that affects the relationship, how it plays into the relationship. So we'll, we'll get there in just a little bit. Uh, but I want to go backwards in time a little bit and hear a little bit about the background behind your relationship. Uh, tell us a little bit about the first time that you two met. We met at the church that Andy actually grew up in. So how how long did you go to that church, Andy? I was there until we got married. Uh, so 21 years at that point. Yeah. So I was 18 and I remember uh, kind of an acquaintance had invited me to a college group at his church. And I remember just sitting in the car, getting ready to go and thinking, am I really going to do this? Like, I don't know anyone there. And I used to be very, very shy. So that was (laughs) that was a very bold move. Um, for me to go and I just remember sitting in the car thinking maybe I shouldn't go maybe I'll just stay home (laughs) and having that internal battle and um, and I'm so glad I went because I remember the moment that I met Andy and he came up to me and and shook my hand and I thought oh who's that guy (laughs) (laughs) you're supposed to focus at church but you were probably a little bit distracted this time right (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, definitely distracted. That's awesome, Andy. What what was tell, tell us a little bit about your perspective, kind of the flip side of that story. Um, do you remember any of the details from the first time that you met Charity? Oh yeah, I I mean we had a pretty tight knit group. Uh, the college group that I was a part of probably had about sixty to seventy people who would attend on a regular basis. So I knew everybody really well. Okay. And um, when Charity kind of came through the door. I first thing I noticed was this was somebody new that I had never met before and I was really drawn to her. A couple of things that really drew me to Charity were I think her really beautiful blue eyes <laughs> and just her smile is is really special because she has these big sweet cheeks that kind of light up when she smiles and I just remember really being intrigued by her as a person. Yeah. And in that moment, the first time I met her, I wanted to get to know her more. And that's kind of the theme throughout 
our whole getting to know one another was I just had this really strong desire to want to take her out and get to know her really deeply. You know, there's, there is something about the first time that you have an opportunity to meet somebody who is so expressive through their eyes. It can kind of catch you off guard because a lot of times people aren't willing to, in a sense, put down their guard uh, and open up, even if it's not verbally. And so to be able to connect with somebody right off the bat in that way had to be extremely compelling. Charity, tell me a little bit about what drew you to Andy initially as well, besides his obvious good looks, of course. So <laughs> I'm laughing because one of the things that I have written down for what drew me to Andy was his body. <laughs> I love it. No, I love the frankness of that. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, that's honest, but, um, so, so, so we won't go into too much detail here, but how, <laughs> Andy, how tall are you? I'm 5'11", but I think what's unique context about this is I actually really enjoy exercise. I was a personal trainer for nine years. Oh, wow. So I actually really enjoyed exercise and apparently charity liked that. I did that too. So <laughs> well, it's a positive thing. He had really great biceps. <laughs> See, this he is... still he still does but so when he came up to shake my hand i definitely noticed those biceps <laughs> that's hilarious but you know i this is it's an entertaining point of conversation but then i also find it really fascinating because of course the stereotype for women at least in most cases is that you know the visual is kind of secondary or tertiary as far as priority of what draws them to a guy i love charity that 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 was one of the first things but I'm curious too, and Andy, you've, you've got a background as a trainer, so obviously your health is, is a priority. Um, and, and I've seen pictures of you since. I mean, you're very lean and, and seemingly healthy, but has that continued to be a point of priority in your relationship to, to stay physically fit for the sake of the other person, understanding that the visual component is important? Yeah, I think so. I Even more so than that, though, it's something that early on we bonded over. Charity was also very athletic. She was a she did competitive dance for almost 10 years. So she understood the idea of fitness and health and nutrition. Her parents were very healthy. She grew up in a very healthy family. And I think we bonded over that really well, not even to the degree that we felt like we had to stay fit for one another, even though we knew each other appreciated that. Yeah. It was just something that we did that was really fun. And we really enjoyed to, we really enjoyed that as having that a part of our family not because we have to, mm. but because we genuinely enjoy uh, doing that together. And, and, and it just happens, so happens to have this a benefit of charity giving you that look the next time that you go and shake her <laughs> hand, right? <laughs> you know, she still gives me that look, which makes me feel awesome. Uh, even though I'm a dad, I'm 31, I'm a dad of two little boys, yeah. and I, my fitness has waned uh, throughout these years, but that's something that I always really appreciate is she's very generous to, to compliment me. And that makes me feel good um, just as a male um, to have her appreciation for that. Absolutely. Well, I, I could really, honestly, I could dig into this for a podcast episode or two because it's, <laughs> uh, I have some uh, negative and positive uh, personal experience with, with this particular topic, but I'll save it for another day. I want to go to the next question. And that is just something random, maybe that the average person might not know. Charlie, let's start with something that most people might not know about Andy that you really like about him. Yeah. So one, one of Andy's quirks is that I find that he has um, like little routines for for like these really um, 
really small parts of his life. So for instance, when he gets out of the shower, he has a routine for how he wipes down his body to dry off with the towel the same way every single time. <laughs> and and I had never like seen this before. That's certainly not how I operate. Yeah. Um, it's quirky and it's funny, but I I actually really appreciate that about Andy because to me, it shows that Andy is reliable and consistent. Interesting. And yeah, and um, so yeah, he's super funny with now, that. But and I have I laugh here because this is actually something that I do as well. There's something, and, and so I'm curious if maybe there's some similarities between myself and and Andy. Andy, are you? kind of a routine, a routine driven individual as a general rule, or does it just stay in the shower? You know, I am pretty routine based. Okay. I like routines. That's how my mind operates. And I think I just do things subconsciously. And I love that because I don't have to use energy and a lot of resources to accomplish those things. I like that. Yeah. You don't really want to have to be thinking every time I get out of the shower, how I'm going to try myself. It's just <laughs> an automatic, automatic impulse. And I kind of do it the same way, but it frees up my mind to have a routine and a pattern where I'm just subconsciously doing it. That's one of many things. And, you know, I can confidently say that what Charity's talking about is not obsessive compulsive. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is again, another conversation in and of itself, but there is something to be said for uh, taking the time to develop routines for both the, the personal side of our lives, as well as the professional side of our lives. But for the sake of, and I love the way that you worded it, Andy, to, to kind of minimize the, the expenditure of energy for those things, especially those things that we have to do over and over again. Uh, but by the way, this is also remind me, this is a second reminder in a very short conversation already that Charity is noticing you, Andy. So you, you better, you better stay in shape. I mean, this is going to be a really oh, important yeah. part of your, your relationship. <laughs> but th- there is something too, to be said for noticing details, you know, and, and especially in, in a long-term committed relationship, um, there is the opportunity to get to know that person at a much, much deeper level. And so to that point, Andy, what's that random thing that you love about Charity that most people wouldn't know? Well, there are two things. One I've noticed since I married Charity. Charity really, really likes kale, but she likes a ton of lemon on her kale and then a ton of Parmesan cheese. (laughs) So she could probably eat that every single day, which is good. Right. uh, But I think it's just kind of quirky and funny. I, I actually really like when she makes it. But the other thing that most people don't know, and I mentioned this very briefly, was... She actually did competitive Irish dance, river dance, basically for almost 10 years. And I remember when we were dating, going to, when we were engaged, going to some of her competitions. And that was really fun to see. You know, it's such a unique dance and style. Right. But it's really, really beautiful. And it's also really, really powerful. So I I just really liked that. And I, I appreciate her drive and her passion to be um, competitive in that way. And and you reached a pretty, I mean, we were talking about being competitive. Charity, you actually did quite well as a, as a competitor in that particular type of dance, right? Yeah, that's true. I was um, championship level. 
which is, I mean, it is, first of all, this wins so far probably the most random thing about a partner that, that we've talked about in the podcast. But I think it's also really interesting that it was something that you learned to appreciate, Andy. I mean, what was that that first time that you saw her dance? I, you know, people always kind of make a joke out of the idea of, a, of an Irish jig, if you will. But this is taking it to a whole different level. What was the experience like seeing that for the first time? I just thought it was really beautiful. There are two different kinds of dance. There's hard shoe which is kind of what you typically imagine with river dance where there's a lot of uh, a hard shoe hitting a floor and then there's a loud noise, but then there's this kind of soft shoe okay. format, which it's much more fluid. It's almost like ballet in a way. And they do it in group formats or individual formats. And when I saw her do that, I just thought, wow, that's really beautiful. It's a really beautiful dance. Um, she looks really elegant as she does it. And I love that she enjoyed the fitness and the competitive aspect of that. Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And then kale, I mean, I, most people probably have at least an inkling of the fact that it is a healthy food to eat. Uh, but what is it about kale and lemon and what type of cheese did you say? Oh, it's got to be Parmesan. Parmesan. Okay. So what is it about that charity? Like, is there a, a, a secret recipe here? You know what, Nathan, if you just Google true food kitchen, okay. kale salad, make it, and try it yourself, then you will see the light and you will know. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. All right. And we're gonna have to we're gonna have to link to that in the show notes too for our listeners who are curious. I, I do love good kale, honestly. In fact, I've got some good friends that make a kale salad that is just absolutely amazing. And usually they'll make it when we go to their house. So um, I may have to give this a shot. Uh, let, let's continue to dig into the history a little bit. I am very much, I told you guys this before we started recording, I'm very much a, a, a sap, a romantic at heart, if you will. I'm curious for you all to describe the moment of your first kiss. What was that like? It was awkward and amazing. At the <laughs> same time. All right. I, I'm, I'm curious to know about the awkward part first. Uh-huh. So we were downstairs. Uh, we were downstairs in my room. And we were just sitting there and I remember we were just kind of staring at each other for a while. And I, I asked her, I said, can I give you a kiss? And she said, yes. So I, I went in to kiss her and Charity's only the second girl I had ever kissed. Um, I had dated one girl before. So this was really, this was a really kind of special moment for me. Yeah. And I was actually the first person that she had ever kissed. Oh, no way. Uh, yeah. So I, I felt maybe I felt a lot of pressure because I'm like, Oh no, I have to like make this really positive if this is going to be her first kiss. So I go in and I, I, I try to give her a kiss and the first five seconds is her smiling <laughs> as I kiss her. So I was basically, uh, I was basically making out with her teeth, her teeth yeah. for the first five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and then she relaxed and, Two hours later, probably we finished kissing. Wow, something like that. Yes, that's probably an exaggeration. <laughs> All right, hour, hour and forty-five minutes. We'll go with that. Yeah, there you go. No, that I, I can. That's funny because, um, yeah, if, if it, probably most of our listeners at some point in time have kissed somebody and and somebody who is smiling, and it's so true that you're getting the teeth all the way. Charity, what was that oh, experience? Yeah. I mean, this is your first kiss. Did Andy set a, a, a good bar? And what was that like for you? Um. I think it was just awkward <laughs> and I truly didn't know what to do. So I just yeah. smiled, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. But, um, 
it definitely got better when he told me to close my mouth. <laughs> I had to, I had to tell her just a little bit on how to do it, but you know, hey, we, fig- we figured we, it we out. We figured it quick. out. But this, this is important, right? Like learning to communicate, even in a in an intimate moment like that, is is uh, I mean, on a, on a on a kind of entertaining note is important, but also on a more serious note is also important. So that's, that's good. You're setting a good standard there from the beginning, Andy. Uh, um, yeah. Charity, were you, were you really nervous? Like, w- was that expected? Was your heart racing when, when he asked if he could kiss you? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, an hour <laughs> and 45 minutes later and, and, uh, that seemed to, to stick because you guys have been together now for how long? We just celebrated eight years in May. Wow. That's really great. That's really, really awesome. Yeah. And, and I'm curious too, and this is a this is a fascinating question, point of conversation for me, especially here at the podcast. Um, I'm, I want to know how each of you define love. I mean, you've been in a relationship now for about eight years, and I'm sure that this is kind of an evolving concept, even in the relationship. But you know, in, in our modern culture, the idea of love, the word love, is used in so many different ways. But when it comes to your relationship, I'm curious if each of you each of you would share your perspective on what love means to you. Uh, Charity, let's start with you. Yeah, so <clears throat> the word, the phrase that I thought of was unwavering devotion. And I, what I mean by that is not um, is not that there's not conflict, that yeah. there's not um, moments of maybe not even enjoying or, or liking the other person. Sure. But more so that ultimately... I know that Andy is for me and that I am for him. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, just even in the midst of conflict, knowing that at the end of the day, Andy is for me, even if, even if we don't see eye to eye or if we don't, we aren't getting along. Um, yeah. You know, I, I like that in particular because it doesn't, I mean, that phrase innately is not associated with any kind of feeling, um, or at least not necessarily. The idea of a unwavering devotion, it's a, it's a choice that you've made to devote yourself to this man. Uh, and, you know, I, I hear so many times, that, and I kind of cringe internally when I hear people use the phrase falling in and out of love or falling out of love, because mm-hmm. it, it's, it plays on this idea that you're riding a roller coaster of emotions. And when that that feeling, those feelings are down. Well, you're no longer in love. And what's the point of continuing in the relationship? And, and the reality, as you pointed out, is that you're not always going to feel it for the other person, but you've made a choice ahead of time, kind of a baseline choice that is driving the relationship, which is unwavering devotion. That is really, really powerful. So I love this. Andy, how about yourself? What's your perspective on it? <clears throat> well, I would say there are different kinds of love, right? So the mm-hmm. love that I share with my two little boys is very, very different than the the love that I would share with my best friend or sure. with my wife. So if we're talking about romantic love or the love that we share with our spouses, the way I would define it is pouring out every single resource that I have in order to help charity flourish spiritually, emotionally, physically, and relationally. And this is kind of this constant it's this constant giving of myself in order for her to be further along in her journey than she was when I first started dating her. Mm. I, I strongly believe that um, charity's this, I mean, I, I feel even emotional saying this, 
she's this beautiful gift that's been given to me by the Lord, by God. Yeah. And I don't know what I would do without her. And I want to, at the end of my life, give her back, give her back to God um, better than how he's given her to me. And that's going to cost me a lot. And it has cost me a lot. It cost me a lot of my vulnerability. It cost me a lot of my time and a lot of my energy, but I deeply, deeply love her and I want to see her flourish. Well, and first of all, thank you for sharing that. And it's a very, very vulnerable way that you described that. I, I think about the word service and you know the idea of serving someone, and again, modern culture, it's not necessarily a popular way to describe an intimate relationship. Uh, unfortunately, in some ways, it's had negative connotations over, over history. Uh, but I, I hear you describing how you want to pour into her so that she becomes a better person. And when you have a relationship where two people are very proactively doing that very thing, and I've been fortunate enough to have an experience like that, um, it's... It, it's so invigorating and you can't help but have a good relationship at that point. It where things can begin to fall short is where one is pouring in and one is not. And of course that's a whole different conversation in and of itself. Uh, but I love this priority again of, I mean, it, we, we could say that there's similarities there to what charity described, which is a devotion to the other person to, to help them be the best version of themselves. And that has nothing to do with what they can give you. It has everything to do with what you can help them with or give to them. And that's really, really powerful. And at the same time, as I, I don't think I can separate how that impacts me because I think that's part of love. Love is this, uh, it's not a one way direction. It's kind of this reciprocal process when I pour into charity and she flourishes I take a lot of delight in that. Like I actually receive a lot of joy and a lot of intimacy and a lot of connection through that process. That's not the reason why I do it, but yeah. I do receive a lot in that process. And I think that is this reciprocal nature of love that it's not a one-way street. Um, it's kind of a circular process. That's it, a really interesting thing. And, and you know, the, on a slightly humorous note, it's, there is almost some selfishness innate to that understanding that we are going to receive that benefit. But I, I think if, at the end of the day, if, if at least there is a kind of a 5149 priority in serving the other person, and hopefully it's much more than that, um, we are going to receive that very benefit that you were talking about. And, and it's a, man, it's a beautiful chemistry at that point. What was it like to tell the other person that you love them for the first time? And, and I don't know, you know, I, I asked this question um, on our podcast episodes with romantic partners and, and it's a, it's one that's, uh, I guess, based on my personal experience, the idea, the concept of loving your romantic partner is one that was very, very powerful for, for me. The first time that I ever told somebody that, it was just, it was almost like, you know, a, a significant amount of energy left my body because I put so much weight on this. What was it like for you all to tell each other that for the first time? I think I remember telling Charity I loved her in an airport as she was about to leave to go back to school in Ohio when I was in Phoenix and I felt two things. Um, I felt this lightness kind of in my body, this relief. Yeah. And yet I felt this almost kind of shaking in my chest, this vulnerability mm. that, Oh my gosh, what did I just say? And is she going to respond well to that? The relief, the relief was that I really, really cared for her. And I wanted to express to her very openly how much I, how much I cared for her. So I was ready to do that. And yet as soon as I did that, 
there was this fear and this vulnerability of, oh my gosh, I just put myself out there. What if she doesn't reciprocate? So it was, it was this kind of dual process. And, um, and that's, that's a little bit of what I remember. And I guess, so the natural question at this point then is how did you respond and was it in kind charity or what, what was that like for you? Yeah. So that was actually a hard moment in our relationship. So that happened. Like, I believe that we started dating the day prior, like we called our relationship official. And the very next day I got on a plane to go back to school. Wow. And, you know, I was 18 and this was my first ever official relationship. And not only that, I grew up in a very, um, just not very emotionally vulnerable family. Hmm. So this whole realm was entirely new for me. Yeah. And him telling me that, I just was so afraid. I was so afraid and I didn't know how to receive that. Um I didn't I didn't even know I didn't even know how to be like vulnerable to that degree even at that point. Um and so I I think I I think this is terrible, but I think what I said back to him was, let's just take things slow. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that was terrifying. I'm sure. What that meant was she wants the window and the opportunity to break up with me if she feels like she needs to. Mm-hmm. And that just put me in such a vulnerable place. And I remember feeling so insecure in that moment. And that was that dynamic of me desiring to be close and her, I think how she described it, this fear of being close was a consistent pattern as we started dating and still is kind of this consistent pattern in our attachment styles. I'm much more kind of anxious in my attachment style. I need to be connected in order to feel secure. Hmm. And I think some of that, that connection is, um, I'll let charity speak for herself, but is scary in that she's much more comfortable kind of pulling back. Is that what you would say? Yeah. So my, like my formal attachment style would definitely be avoidant. Um, So maybe Andy can explain just real briefly about attachment styles. But um, so mine is like protect, what can I do to, to protect myself? And so like entering that space of vulnerability has been a huge learning curve for me and um, is, is what I desire and, and know that is what is healthy and, and what I want for my life. But, um, but unfortunately just how it is, is, is my background and how I grew up. I was, you know, given certain things and, um, you know, really developed this fear and being connected and, and, um, so yeah, it's definitely been a dynamic that we've had to work through in our relationship. And this is interesting to me. I kind of want to break it down a little bit and maybe we can start charity, as you suggested, Andy, can you kind of explain what, what an attachment style means and maybe give some examples of those various attachment styles? Yeah, we develop attachment, um, actually in utero. So in the womb, Research shows that we learn how to attach to our primary caregiver before we're even born. So if a mother's experiencing high levels of stress, or actually if she doesn't want the child that she's bearing, Mm. research 
shown that the child will actually carry that attachment style. They'll wow. carry the pain even before they're born. And, and when they're born, we have this early stage of attachment that develops between um, the first 18 months. And three primary attachment styles, or four, I guess, one would be secure. So this is a sense of my needs are getting met in healthy ways by a primary caregiver, and they're consistent, they're emotionally connected, and they're available. Okay. If that doesn't happen, I'm going to have one of two attachment styles. I'm typically going to have an avoidant attachment style, which means if I think about getting close to people, um, that's extremely scary to me, and I'd rather be independent and kind of um, independent and kind of go inside yeah. and not connect. The other one is an anxious attachment style, which is I don't quite know how to survive in this world without being very closely connected and attached to a person. And there's almost this fear of not being attached to a person. And that's what I relate to much more. The, the fourth approach is kind of a combination of those last two. It's called a disorganized style. So this one is actually the most disruptive. This happens when there's a lot of trauma, when there's a lot of abuse, in which we flip-flop between those two attachment styles. So one day we might really want someone really close. We might need them very close. But then the next day or the next week, we might be terrified that they're getting closer and we might push them away. It's this kind of wanting someone close and not wanting them close at the same time. Wow. And and you, you said that from your perspective, you felt as though you had kind of an anxious attachment style. And there's innate to that, I guess, is a certain amount of projection that was happening. There was also some expectation. And I'm, I'm curious to hear you comment on this idea of expectation and relationships. And again, it's a massive topic. We could probably have multiple episodes just on, on this topic. But you had a certain expectation, literally the day after you guys made your relationship official, that that charity would respond in kind. And when she didn't, it made you feel anxious. Talk a little bit about expectation and how it played into that. I would actually use a different word than expectation. Okay. I would actually use the word need. Like we as human beings have these innate emotional needs that we have in relationship to be loved and to be wanted and to be desired and pursued. Every single person has that. And um, that's actually a really, really good thing. What's problematic about that, though, is then when we go about trying to meet that need in really unhealthy ways. Mm. And when we try to go about meeting that need in ways where we're not vulnerable, vulnerability is this sense of putting myself out there, expressing my needs to someone with my hands open wide and saying, will you meet me here? Um, Not being vulnerable is like tying a rope around someone and pulling them towards you. It's manipulative. It's controlling. It's decisive for the, it's, it's, it's toxic for the relationship. Yeah. That's not vulnerable. That's me trying to get my needs met in unhealthy ways. But if I open my hands and I say, hey, this is my story. This is my pain. This is what I need. Can you and will you love me in this? Um, that's vulnerability. And that's a, that's a deep need. And if the other person responds in kindness and compassion and love, there can be a lot of intimacy there. But if they don't, like what happened in that um, in that airport, there can be a lot of pain there. Wow. Okay. So uh, take us then through the, the progression of like what it took to, to get to the point charity where you felt like you could tell Andy that you loved him. You said there was a certain fear. Was that, that fear was just, was it a lack of understanding of, of the concept of love to begin with or intimacy? What, what was driving that fear? Um, 
Well, just to be honest, like I just, I just really didn't have a good concept of intimacy. Hmm. Like that, that was not um, something that was cultivated, you know, very well in the family I grew up in. And, um, and so I just really didn't know how. And, and so I think there, I mean, there, there was, and there is just a whole process of me learning how to be connected, even with myself and, and certainly with Andy. And um, so it was a lot of, a lot of learning in that realm. Um, And you know what, to be totally honest, like until the day that we got married and we stood in front of our friends and, and family and made a promise um, before them and, and before God that of our commitment, I think I was terrified, just so terrified that like that Andy, Andy would leave, Hmm. like to be honest. Um, and how, how vulnerable I felt being in a relationship that, that I didn't know was, was going to be something that, um, would sustain, you know, and, and for for us, I think even for Andy, like just making that commitment on our wedding day was like, okay, this is like locked in, and and I'm I'm doing this with you, and I've you know I've made this promise to you, and you've made this promise to me, and and like it was almost like at that point we could just move forward in a lot more security. That makes sense. Well, he he had taken yet another step and exemplifying his commitment to you. And uh, that was probably almost a relief even. Yeah. It created safety. Yeah. I think it created the safety that I really, really needed. And did it, I mean, did it did take a, a day, a week, a month, a year. How long did it take before you felt like you could tell him in kind, Andy, I love you. You know, to be honest, I don't even remember. I know that I was away at school for six months and I think it was probably when we were together in the summer that that, that happened for yeah. me. But, but I, I honestly don't remember the moment when I said that. I remember how it felt, not when it happened. I remember it felt awkward, but it felt really sweet too at the same time. Well, there is, and, and, and this goes without saying really, but there is a, there's a certain amount of, I, I, we've used the word relief. That, that's the word that comes to mind right now that comes from knowing that somebody else is, uh, to your earlier word, Charity, devoted to you, that, that they have your back. Um, you, you spoke to the significance of stability, and, and I'm better understanding even where that, that the importance of that idea comes from for you now. And I'd love that you all have worked through those, I guess insecurities is, is a good word, because of your past. Um, and and it's, kudos to you, Andy, for the way that you've been so consistent and creating that sense of stability for charity. And, and I really appreciate you all just sharing that backstory. It's such a vulnerable, intimate story. And I know that our listeners will benefit greatly from that. I'm curious, though, to go kind of a different direction. And let's talk a little bit about independence. Um, this is something I've said on the podcast before. I, I, I've realized over the last five years or so, four to five years or so, the significance of independence in a long-term romantic relationship. How do you all maintain that the sense of stability that you're talking about that's so important to you that that connection 
but then also have some type of independence there where you're still an individual or individuals who are then choosing to come back together? So I think to start originally, what I would say is that what creates a really beautiful marriage actually is is not independence, it's interdependence. Hmm. And I think you would probably say the same. I think I'm just changing a little bit of the language. Interdependence is that in a relationship, I need you and you need me. Yeah. And not in a codependent way, which is I can't survive without you. Right. But actually, I have, as a human being, emotional needs. And in order for me to be loved, I have to be loved by another person. Like that's just the reality. That's the framework that we get when we're born. Yeah. Um, I kind of call this the belly button analogy <laughs> because <laughs> do tell, every, do explain. <laughs> every single person has a belly button. Okay. If you don't, please like call me because I, that's an anomaly. <laughs> um, but everybody has a belly button because they are so uniquely tied to the mother, yeah. which was feeding them nutrients to help them live. If the mother died, the child died. If the mother thrives, the child thrives. That we're so uniquely tied to people. And every time we look at our belly button, it should remind us that we are not independent people. We are in this ecosystem where um, I need to connect and relate with other people. And I would say in a marriage, the best marriages are those who vulnerably acknowledge that they need something from their spouse. And at the same time, um, they have unique passions and giftings and dreams and desires and personality that is theirs regardless of what their spouse says or does to them. Where, what's the line, though, I guess, between, I mean, you mentioned the idea of codependence and then, of course, inter, interdependence. What's, what is that line? Where, where is it healthy and then it begins to kind of degrade and become unhealthy? I think it becomes unhealthy when... Um, I don't know how to cope in life. I don't know how to function in life without, without this person kind of pouring into me. Hmm. It's not extremely clear cut. It's different based on every person. That makes sense. Um, and it's based on their attachment styles. It's based on their story. But I do think um, how I typically do this with couples is I have them draw two circles. Okay. And I have those circles uh, overlap to some degree. So there's a portion in the middle that's overlapped. And I will have each couple write what is unique to them as an individual on the outside of those circles. Hmm. And then the portion that's in the middle, I will relate, I will have them write, what is it that's unique to you as a couple? Like what makes you you as a couple? And in order to have a successful marriage, they actually need both of those. They need the connectedness of we and they need the individuality of me, but you can't separate those. You need both. And when I'm thinking about those, those intertwining circles, is there a, like a certain percentage that should be more about the individual versus the couple, or is it an equal amount that would you usually suggest? It's totally different based on their story and based on their pain and based on their unique needs. Yeah. Um, some people, some people can't write anything in their individual circle because they've never known themselves outside of a relationship. Wow. That's how they define themselves. And some people are so terrified to give of themselves in relationship that they're totally independent because they're afraid that if this person leaves, 
I don't want them leaving with any part of me. So they don't share part of themselves with the other person. But it's very unique to people's story and people's journey. That totally makes sense. And and as much as I want to continue, because this, again, is another whole topic that we could cover probably over multiple episodes in and of itself, I think this is a good start and, and points of consideration for our listeners. Uh, again, from personal experience, I've I've been there where not only was I in a relationship with somebody who was codependent in nature, I was also exhibiting that behavior as well. And it's so toxic in the end. Um, I've had the wonderful fortunate experience of being outside of that and being in a relationship that does exhibit more independence. And yet simultaneously, I'm, I'm even actually for that very fact that there is room for independence, I'm that much more drawn to the individual. And it's so wonderfully exhilarating and, and comforting and exciting all at the same time. Uh, and, uh, so I, I, think it's, it's wonderful to at least begin to consider for all those listening in. Uh, and obviously since I'm not a professional, I can only comment so much here. I really appreciate Andy, you sharing your perspective on this, but if you're in a relationship that feels toxic, one of the things to consider in this case may be, I, would you say Andy, kind of the, the percentages of those intertwining circles, maybe, maybe adjusting in one way or the other. I think, I think seeing a therapist and walking through your story of pain, I think if there's trauma and abuse in somebody's background, it is almost impossible to be interdependent. We will typically be in the category of codependent or independent. I don't need people or I can't survive without people. Hmm. Uh, trauma just fractures our ability to be in vulnerable, safe, secure um, relationships where we share ourselves back and forth. It's almost impossible with trauma. Well, again, I really appreciate your perspective and your sharing on this. And and um, yet again, I'm going to kind of go a little bit of a different direction. We're, we're talking about the idea at this podcast of what it means to have a happy relationship. And um, it, of course, the reality is that's going to look different for everyone. So I'm curious, Charity and Andy, if you'll both share your perspectives on what a happy, in this case, romantic relationship looks like to you. Charity, if you'll start. I think a happy romantic relationship is that concept of truly knowing and being known. So intimately knowing the other person and equally being known in who I am as well. Um, I think another really beautiful mark of a, of a relationship is being able to speak honest truth and have that heard and received. Um, so being able to work through conflict. Yeah. Uh, you, you sigh you know, very I, deeply there. Is, is, is there a reason for the deep sigh? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, not very, at all. That's very therapeutic, Nathan. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I find, and, and I don't want to interrupt you, Charity here. Maybe you have further thoughts, but I, I find it really fascinating that you said being known, we're going to actually get into this very topic here in more depth in just a little bit, but that in your, in your mind, from your perspective now, despite your past, um, your childhood, and kind of the struggle to open up to the idea of intimacy more and more, that now the idea of intimacy, of being known and, and knowing, is, in your mind, one of the most important elements of a happy relationship. I mean, that, that says so much for certainly the health of your relationship, but so how far you've come since the beginnings of this relationship as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Andy, comment on, on your perspective, too, on, on what a happy relationship looks like to you. I think a happy relationship is when 
two people really just delight in one another. And when I say that, I mean that I really actually enjoy Charity as a person. I enjoy her passions, her giftings, her personality, and I want to get to know her better. I think there's kind of this, this culture in which when we get married, we stop wanting to learn about the other person. Mm, yeah. And I love how over the last eight years, I've learned a little bit more about charity as time goes on. And that helps me feel close to charity. And it also, um, I think it just adds to the overall well-being of our relationship. And when you talk about getting to know someone more and more over the years, I'm assuming you're referring to kind of nuanced differences, details that, that maybe you didn't notice in the first, I mean, how long did you all date and, and were engaged before you got married? We dated for 10 months and then we were engaged for eight months. Okay. So, so about a year and a half. About a year and a half. And, and so you're, you're, you've spent some time together, but, but going into a marriage and now having a much more intimate relationship and, and being together much more, what are those kinds of details that, that uh, when you talk about getting to know Charity better, what, what type of things are you referring to? Well, I guess I can speak for myself, the things that she's known me in, because um, I feel more comfortable sharing kind of the aspects that I've let her into. Sure. You know, it's, I think it's unique and interesting because the things that she described that first drew her to me, which was a lot of kind of external body type characteristics. She didn't know at that time that I actually, um, I actually really struggled in my body to the degree that um, I have this condition called hyperhidrosis. And what that is, is my hands and my feet and my armpits sweat um, so much to the degree that when I was in grade school and when I was in, um, um, early stages of high school, I couldn't actually complete an exam or write on a piece of paper without completely drenching my paper. Oh, wow. Like it was so difficult for me and it was extremely socially isolating. So I felt like as strong as my body was physically, my body was betraying me because I couldn't get close to people mm. because they would want to shake my hand or they would, you know, make fun of the rings of sweat under my armpits. Um, and charity part of getting close to her and building vulnerability was actually letting her hold my hand when it was sweaty, having her touch my feet when it was sweaty and actually realizing, Oh, she doesn't have to, she's not going to shame me in that. I can actually let her into the places that I feel most afraid to let her into. Yeah. The beautiful thing is over the years, I very rarely um, sweat on my, um, sweat on my body when I'm with her sitting comfortably with her, because I think I trust her. Like my body trusts her enough to where it doesn't have to feel anxious. And therefore it doesn't sweat when I'm around her. Wow. My mind is going multiple directions here. First of all, on a, on a slightly humorous note, um, I actually, I, I sweat quite a bit as well, not to this extent, but, um, I'm, I'm kind of known for wearing a black t-shirt literally all the time. Uh, I'm 99.9% of the time. Uh, this is something that I started doing, probably a good, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago at least. But I did it for the very reason that I sweat so badly that um, I'd get up to speak to a group of of people and I was concerned about how I looked. The very thing you're talking about, the, you know, the, the rings under my arms and if I raise my hand and I'm pointing to the screen or whatever it might be, that, that it was going to be very obvious that I was sweating. So I started wearing 
black t-shirts largely for that very reason. So I can relate to at least a little bit there, Andy, but you said this was driven by nerves. What was the point in your relationship? Like how long into your relationship where you stopped sweating as much because there was a certain level of comfort? Well, I had gotten actually, um, so when I was in seventh or eighth grade, I had actually done all the research by myself to look up a surgeon who specializes in um, doing this. And I I printed off probably 50 pages of documentation, took it to my parents. I think I might've even like looked into checking the insurance and making sure the insurance cleared and everything. It was such, it was so shaming and I was hurting so bad that I took it to them and I just remember crying with them and saying, you have to do something. So I actually went out and got a surgery and now I only sweat on my feet. But I I think pretty early on, I just felt extremely comfortable. Even if my hands did sweat, my feet did sweat, that I don't need to be afraid of that because charity receives me in that. Mm. She accepts me in that. And that was extremely healing for me. Maybe Charity, you can kind of speak from your perspective. What's something that you feel like you kind of let Andy into over the span of your relationship where he was able to to get to know you a little bit more? I think just my story, my story. And um, you said like, what have we discovered about ourselves over the years? Um, I think was your question. I just think like we literally have grown up together because we got married at I was 20, couldn't like, couldn't even drink at our wedding. I was 20 (laughs) and Andy was uh, 23. So like we have really, really just um, grown into ourselves. I feel like, like during this marriage, you know, so there've been, there've been so many layers we've like uncovered throughout the journey of our marriage. And, and certainly for me, you know, I was 18 when we started dating 20, when we got married, that was my really, um, like coming away from my family of origin and living a a new life outside of that. So I had so much processing of layers for myself to work through, um, with my history and, and just understanding where I had come from. And so I think every year it was like uncovering new layers of that and sharing that, that pain or those joys um, with, with Andy and letting him know me in that space. Um, So that's been really cool. Well, and this is a really a great segue into kind of our our focus for today. And I say our focus, we've been chatting for about 50 minutes now, and I want to make sure I respect uh, your time, but this has been such a, a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you all sharing Uh, But Charity, you spoke to the idea of knowing and being known, and I want to dig into this a little bit. Um, Talk to us a little bit about what drove even the realization that this was an important element of having a healthy relationship for you. What, What was the impetus for that realization? Yeah, so I think it was living the experience of it. So just to be really candid, like sitting in a therapist office with Andy. Cause we did, we did our own therapy for, off and on for four years when yeah. we first got married. Um, so just sitting in a counseling office with Andy and like just being in tears mm. about our, our stories or I'll speak for myself about my story and having, having Andy see that pain and sit with me in it and experiencing the hope mm. on the other side of that. 
because um, I think sometimes the scariest thing, or at least for me, the scariest thing for me sometimes is, is being able to look back and face the pain that I have endured for fear that that will consume me or, or take over, take, take me out, you know, and, um, and the, the coolest thing has been actually finding the courage to go back to those spaces Hmm. and to to sit in them, the realness of them and to have Andy's presence, to have someone's presence in that and then experience the hope and the joy on the other side. And it's interesting that you say hope um, and, and even the idea of being able to kind of sit in the space and exploring these past painful experiences and then translating that to um, what, I guess, what it means now to your relationship and how you can move beyond those. But you both kind of exert this this uh, sense of of peace and calm. I mean, is that is that the norm in the way that you interact with each other? Because if that's the case, I can imagine how it makes it that much easier to kind of work through some of these issues. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I I think that peace and that calm has been cultivated through many through much conflict and yeah. many tears and. Sure. I think when we. I think actually that we have turmoil inside those moments where we feel the greatest pain are actually the moments when we can feel the most intimacy. If we're willing to share with one another, our pain. Mm. So I actually, I really desire peace and calm. Don't get me wrong. I would, I, I love that in our marriage, but I don't shy away from the pain because I know that in the pain, we have this beautiful window and this beautiful opportunity to be known so deeply. Mm-hmm. And that's actually what I see speaking from a therapist perspective. What I see from my clients is they don't want to talk about the pain, but if they don't talk about the pain, they can't be known in that place. Mm-hmm. And it's actually that place in which they so deeply desire to be known. So they're kind of they have this aching wound inside that's not being loved and my desire is to help people see that to be brave enough to notice that kind of like what charity was saying and to recognize that they don't have to be alone in that anymore wow well you're kind of reading me here here andy as as a as an interviewer because my next question is um that the I guess the biggest reason why the idea of being known or knowing someone deeply is so important to the health of a relationship, but you're speaking to this idea of, I guess, vulnerability, being willing to open to someone so that you don't have to hold that pain yourself. Somebody's able to come alongside you and help carry that. But can you kind of expand on that idea? What is the significance of being known and knowing someone deeply? Does it does it go beyond that? So here's how I would ex- explain it a little bit. Before I can share myself with charity to be known by her, I actually have to know myself. And what that means is I have to look at myself honestly and face my own story because if I can't do that first, I actually have a very difficult time letting charity into that. One of the areas, and I, I say this because I think this relates to a lot of people and it might be helpful. I actually... Um, I had a real strong addiction to pornography for probably 12 years and into our marriage as well. And I just remember 
trying so many times over and over to stop that addiction. Mm-hmm. One of my really good friends who's also a mentor, he told me, he said, I wonder if that addiction is less about pleasure and more about pain. Mm. And I started to realize, I remember I just was crying in bed because I realized after I had looked at porn, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm hurting so bad to be known. I came from a family that was very emotionally disconnected, similar to charity, especially with my dad, where my dad, he couldn't and he wouldn't relate emotionally to me. Mm. Um, And that that really hurt. And what I realized I was doing is I was looking for something some outlet in order to numb the pain that I felt. And porn was that outlet. And it wasn't charity's responsibility to do anything about that. It was mine. But I had to face the pain of why I was doing that. And through that, then I was able to share that with charity and be known. Yeah. You know, what what pops to mind right now is is a quote um, from Tony Robbins. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Tony for multiple reasons. But one of the things that, that he said in a video uh, clip that I saw from him is that, uh, and it actually, let me, let me preface this by saying that there is, there is so much a stereotype when it comes to, to guys that they're driven by their sexual urges, and that's kind of where it stops. Like there's the, the idea of intimacy doesn't usually come to bear in the conversation so many times. It's just this constant projection of, well, a guy is horny, I mean, to use a really crass word, but... Um, there is, I think, a really interesting conversation that's not had enough in our modern culture these days, which is that at the root of that, while there is certainly a physical desire, there is a genuine need for intimacy. And I, and I say this passionately because I'm speaking, again, from personal experience, but this, this really, when I, when I heard this from Tony, the, the light bulbs just kind of came glaring on, if you will. And, and he said, and he uses an, an expletive, I'll, I'll leave it out in this case, but he says that what really messes with a, a man's mind is not, it's not about sex. It's about getting to connect with somebody who will truly open to them. Sex is, is, is almost a, um, uh, an exemplification of that, but it's actually about being able to connect with somebody intimately that goes beyond just simply that physical interaction. It is a genuine desire for intimacy. When somebody is willing to truly open themselves to a man, that will make him happy. And um, so I, I find it fascinating that that you're describing this scenario because I've had similar personal experience, and in, in hindsight, I can I can see very distinctly a, a just an absolute craving on my part for intimacy that was partially exemplified and going where I could find it easily, uh, in a sense. And, and for those who may not have experience with pornography, this may not make make a ton of sense, but it's such an important conversation that needs to be had. And I'm so glad that that you've even taken us there, Andy. Yeah, I can tell your passion for that, Nathan, and I really, I really admire and appreciate your desire to want to express that because we need to change that narrative. I think in our culture and especially in marriage, sexual addiction is not about sex. It's not about sex. It's about an inability to be able to attach and connect with people in a vulnerable way. Yeah, that's why we have porn addiction or sex addiction or whatever it is is because that's the safest route. If I can look at a woman on a screen and then leave and she she will always want me. She won't ever right. reject me. Where my wife, that's true vulnerability and yet at the same time that's true intimacy. But I have to face my own pain and I have to be responsible 
And I've never expressed that Charity was ever responsible for that behavior. And that's important to note. I've always taken responsibility for that because it hurt her. And yet at the same time, I had to change my idea on what it means to be vulnerable and start to pursuing charity in a vulnerable way. And that's been really beautiful for us. And, and Charity, would you, I mean, obviously there, there was pain there, but did you come to also understand kind of some of these, these principles, these concepts and ult- that, that we're talking about now and, and ultimately at the root of Andy's behavior, his, his absolute desire for intimacy? Um, yeah. So I, I think, again, like that's where like therapy has been really powerful because I think it's, it's really hard to get to that place on your own yeah. to understand what's actually going on inside. Um, and so, I mean, I think it's been that therapy office for us where we talk about these things and there's that third person who can, who can kind of tell it back to you and help you understand why be behavior is coming out in the way that it's coming out. And so anyway, having, having those experiences has, has helped me understand for yeah. Andy yeah. and certainly Andy pursuing his own awareness and mm. being able to communicate it to me in that way for me to understand, because I, I wouldn't naturally know that, that a pornography addiction is about this lack of this desire for intimacy. Um, I, I wouldn't naturally know that, you know, but right. his ability to tell me that and also our ability to, to discover that doing therapy and walking through our stories has been really, really valuable. Wow. I did want to go back because you you asked about why is this concept of knowing and being known so important? And I just I just really believe that I that, that is as a human being, I think that is our deepest deepest longing Hmm. is to be known and to be loved. And so I think that's why it's so vital and so important. Well, and, and you've alluded to this multiple times in our conversation now, but you, you had an experience um, or a a series of experiences as a child uh, where you didn't have the opportunity to experience that kind of intimacy. And so it's even more important at this stage in your life that you, that you're able to kind of fulfill that need as, as Andy was saying, um, for that intimacy, and uh, you know, th- this kind of leads me to a different question. I'm, I'm curious when it comes to this idea of knowing someone well. One of the things again that I've realized over the last few years, and I, I, I've probably at this time, at this point, multiple times over this relatively new podcast, alluded to the fact that the last five, six years or so of my life have been particularly impactful. I've grown a lot as an individual. And um, w- one of the things that, that I've learned is the, the significance of belief. Uh, so much of what makes up who we are as individuals uh, is driven by experience, which kind of, I guess, becomes a little bit more tangible in, in the context of a, of a belief or a series of beliefs, which then drives emotion and behavior. And so I'm curious, particularly from your perspective, Andy, as a therapist, when, when we're talking about getting to know someone... Is is getting to know someone? How much of what percentage of that, I guess, is is innate um, to someone's past and getting to know their past and how that affects their behavior now, um, or how much of it is you know nature? I guess that the, the common conversation or almost debate is nature versus nurture. What percentage of each? Um, what's your take on this? What's your perspective on this? Everybody is born with a 
innate temperament that doesn't typically change. And we would define this as somebody's personality. And that is relatively stable throughout somebody's life. So that's the first part that I think um, nature uh, for someone is that they do have these qualities and these characteristics about who they are, their temperament, their personality. And part of getting to know ourselves and sharing that with other people is actually being able to come to terms with and appreciate and start to learn to love our temperament not to want someone else's temperament, but to actually be able to learn to love and appreciate our own temperament. So I would encourage people to do things like the Myers-Briggs, to be able to do the Enneagram, if you've ever heard of the Enneagram, um, and to be able to share that with someone you really love. But then at the same time, we have this nurture component from my inception as a child in my mother's womb, the world around me changes how I think about the world, how I feel, how I relate to other people. And if we don't know both of those dynamics, the personality and the story, we're going to really, really struggle to have deep intimacy with other people. So I don't, I don't know if there's a percentage. I hear, I hear you really, uh, these specifics that you're craving for, and yet <laughs> it would be unfair for me yeah. to give clear percentages because as a therapist, Nathan, I have to live in the world of gray. Yes. <laughs> and my clients always want black and white mm. because then it creates what they think a safer world. And it actually doesn't. It creates more neuroticism when we desire that it has to be a certain way. But when we can open up this plane of possibility, mm and kind of move into this gray area of not knowing and actually remind ourselves that's okay that I don't know specifics. That's actually very freeing for people then to accept themselves, to accept other people, and to move from rigidity into like this river of well-being. That's that's really interesting, and I'm glad that you actually bring up this point of, of black and white versus the gray. You know, I so much of my... Um, uh, I, I guess my my struggle to move outside that that obsession with the black and white approach to life comes again from my childhood as well and the way that I was raised and and an extremely um, also kind of an extremely almost controlling religious environment. I was so used to the idea of things are this way. Period. End of story. Versus the reality in life, which is that pretty much everything is gray. And, and while we may feel the sense of stability when we have the absolute answer, the reality is that that is just not the case with, with at least most things in life. Is there something, like even a first step, that those who are struggling with the idea of moving from a black and white men- mentality where they have to know everything and have to, everything has to be just so in order for them to feel safe to an openness? I mean, the, the word adventurous comes to mind when I'm thinking about the idea of, all right, I'm going to take a deep breath relax for a second and be open to the idea that I, I'm not, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I'm going to take it on as an adventure. It's a shift in mentality. Uh, but what, what can enable someone to kind of move in that direction? Yeah. Well, first I just want to appreciate you sharing kind of your background. Um, some of that religious background, which kind of, that would be the nurture component, which has kind of pushed you into seeing the world as black and white. And I really admire your ability to reflect on and notice that. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's, it's a, again, probably a multiple episode conversation in and of itself, too. 
I don't know, I guess at this point, even for me on a daily basis, there is a, there's a certain amount of comfort that comes f- from structure. But being okay with the fact that that structure may not happen every single day, that schedule may not happen every single day, or within that schedule, something may work, but something may not work. Learning to go with the flow, to borrow kind of a cliche phrase, um, it, that's, been a, that's been a learning curve for me, certainly. But is there, is there kind of a next step, especially for our listeners who are also working through that, that they can take in order to kind of move in that direction? Yeah. So let me just use a little bit of our interaction right there as an example. Okay. So when I affirmed kind of Nathan, this growth process that you've had, I just noticed that we had about two seconds to three seconds of silence before each of us responded again. Yeah. And it's in those two to three seconds or five seconds in which something changes in our brain where we start to reflect and we start to notice what's happening in our bodies and in our hearts and in our emotions. If we don't have moments of pause, like I just gave us like four seconds there. (laughs) (laughs) If we don't have moments of pause, we won't be able to know what's going on in our heart and what's going on in our mind and what's going on in our relationships. So real practically, I would encourage people, get really comfortable with silence. You don't have to fill the air. It'll be okay. Hmm. Like when I sit across from my best friend and he says he's having a really hard week, I don't need to tell him it's going to be okay. I can just look at him and just feel with him in that moment. And usually what I encourage people to do is just take a breath. Instead of talking, just take a breath. Um, The other thing to do is to move this kind of focus of to start to use language like noticing and awareness and curiosity. So instead of, um, so for example, we move into this place where we can start to say what I'm noticing happening inside of myself. Hmm, I'm really curious about the way I just responded to Nathan in that last comment. Oh, I notice how I... And I'm aware that I just used um three times and I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. I'm not judging it. I'm just becoming aware of what's happening and reflecting back on myself and words like curious and notice and wonder. And I'm aware all of that language is a mindfulness language, which allows us to stay out of judgment and allows us to reflect back on what's happening inside of us. That's the best way to develop kind of that deeper awareness of what's going on. Yeah. You know, this actually reminds me, uh, and, and I mean, my goodness, first of all, thank you, Andy, for your commentary here and, and helping us all with our perspective. Uh, it's certainly impactful for me. Uh, it, it reminds me actually of a book uh, that has been a favorite of mine over the last few years called uh, The Untethered Soul. It's by a guy named Michael Singer, and he delves into the idea of of meditation and really lends an interesting perspective to it. You know, there's there's this kind of obsession with in, in American culture, at least past American culture, recent history, uh, where people hear the word meditation and they think of this kind of stereotypical idea that you're just not supposed to think about anything. And what Michael lends, I think, wonderful value to this conversation, or the way that he does, is by suggesting that instead of trying to just get rid of the thoughts in your mind, which of course is essentially counterintuitive and it doesn't work out very well usually, um, that instead you simply see the thought 
see it in and then kind of see it out and do that, repeat that process over and over again. And and my personal meditation practice, it's been extremely, it's been a relief really, and an extremely effective way to go about the process of sitting, being quiet, being okay with the quiet, as you were saying. And then instead of fighting those thoughts, seeing them, being okay with them, and then seeing them out. And that produces just a, a, an immediate almost sense of kind of calm and relaxation. And it sounds like an absolutely wonderful first step. What would you say is kind of the balance between, um, and, and when you were talking a little bit earlier about our personalities, nature versus nurture, uh, I was thinking about this as well, but I'm kind of curious what the balance is between understanding, acknowledging our past, understanding it, understanding how it affects our psychology now, um, but then also, I guess, giving only so much credence to that because it's easy to get obsessed with our past and, and kind of play a victim role and then not really move on from it. How do we balance that? Yeah, Andy's going to let me take this one since he's been talking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I pointed to her and suggested that she take yeah. it. She's got more wisdom than I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is wonderful. I appreciate you both contributing. What What are your thoughts on that, Charity? Yeah, so I actually do not think that it's an either or mentality. Like I either, I either acknowledge my past or I live in the present. Um, I think it's this beautiful interconnectedness of the past to the present. And I think I just, as I was reflecting on this, I was reflecting on my own journey. And I think, I think the thing that inhibits me the most from being able to embrace the present is actually avoiding the past because it takes so much energy to ignore that pain or to ignore my story. Um, It takes tremendous amount of energy, so much so that it doesn't give me the ability to even be present in this moment, um, whether or not I'm aware of that or not. And I think that the more that I can press into my past and my story, and understand it and have compassion for it, the more it frees me up to live connected in this moment and in the, and in the present. Um, so those are kind of my thoughts on that. But I guess in, to that point, when I, when I think about, um, and I've alluded to my past as well during our conversation today, um, it could be easy to continue to focus. I guess, I guess maybe the better question here is, how much focus do we give it? Uh, and at what point do we say, okay, we, we, we know what happened. We know how it affected me, but the person that I want to be is X. And that's what my goal is. I want to get there. So we, we've taken the time to acknowledge it. I, I guess what, what and I'm, I'm kind of struggling for words here again, but I'm, I'm thinking about, it, it seems like in our culture these days, and you can see it even just scrolling through Facebook, there is such an obsession with, quote, who we are, And then what that translates to, in some cases, fortunately, people have developed a a certain level of of awareness about their past and how that affects them now. Um, But it seems as though they're stuck there. And the conversation is just, I am, fill in the blank, I am this person. And that's where the conversation ends. And so when I hear even something that, you know, somebody can say, for example, I am an introvert. And for the longest time, I personally would have kind of labeled myself that um, I'd had introverted tendencies. But when I took some time to 
take a step back and develop a certain level of self-awareness about what was driving those introverted, introverted tendencies. When I was at a, uh, a professional event, for example, in a crowded room and I was uncomfortable and I had to get out after 30 minutes or 45 minutes and, and just take a, take a break before I could go back in, I realized there was much more that was driving those tendencies. And so to simply label myself an introvert, for example, um, was a little bit short-sighted even and limiting in my personal growth because I had, I had said, this is, quote, who I am, and it just kind of stopped there. When I took the, the time and made the effort and, and, the ener- and put the energy into understanding what drove that behavioral pattern, I was then able to enact change in my life and, and I mean, relax in those environments and enjoy them that much more. So I'm, I'm still, I guess I'm kind of still digging here. I'm, I'm curious of what that balance is. And maybe, again, there's no black and white answer, but could there not be in our culture a little bit more of a shift in the direction of proactivity, acknowledgement, certainly, but then proactivity for the sake of personal growth? Well, I think it's really interesting, the story that you just shared, because, because it actually, t- to me, and what I heard and perceived about the story that you shared was that you had something that you believed about yourself in this present moment. I am something. And then you took the the time to look at that deeper and discovered, oh, that's actually, there's so many factors to that. And correct me if I'm wrong, were you then discovering, oh, this is actually more so what's true about me is maybe I'm not as much of an introvert as I thought I was. Is that true? Well, I guess the last thing that I want, and and I don't want to allude to Tony Robbins too much in our conversation, but again, I've learned so much from him over the last few years. And one of the things that he talks about is is this concept of limiting beliefs. And and again, tying into what I said earlier about the significance of belief and how that drives who we are, quote, who we are, um, I I guess ultimately I saw this as kind of a, a limiting belief. I was I was relatively consistently in these environments where I kind of had to be for the sake of my profession. And so in order to continue to exist in those environments, but it not be uncomfortable, I had to change my belief system. I had to, I had to adjust my perspective about who I, quote, who I was and what was ultimately making me uncomfortable in that scenario. So yeah, taking the time to go back and look at why, very, very specifically about why I was uncomfortable in that scenario, instead of just simply writing it off to being an introvert, um, it enabled me then to be able to move forward and function in that environment in a much more healthy, productive way. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the concept that I was sharing, Nathan, is like, it sounds like you were able to take that time to look back and assess where that belief even came from. And by doing that, you were able to actually alter that belief into something else that was actually more true about you. Hmm. And I think, I think that those, those beliefs about ourselves are hugely that nurture component as you were using that language. Um, and so I think the more that we can press into our, our stories and those beliefs, the more that we can actually be proactive about this present moment, because those things are impacting us and driving our thoughts and our belief systems, even if we don't recognize it that's happening. So the more that we can lean into that process and be aware that that's happening, the more that we can change our inner narrative for this present moment. I love that. I think 
I think that's a beautiful summation of uh, of that idea and, and a wonderful, wonderful answer to that question. Um, I said earlier, I want to respect you all's time. And, and I, I mean, my goodness, I, I could go for hours. This has been such wonderful conversation. But are there a few steps uh, or a few ideas that have driven your ability to get to know Andy better? And the same thing for you, Andy, that have enabled you to get to know Charity better in your relationship that some of our listeners might be able to apply to theirs? Yeah, we wrote down four tips. So I will just read them off to you since we're kind of short on time and, and we are aligned on these. So this will be our answer together. But sure. um, number one is just to share your story with your spouse, your story from from the very beginning to right now, to share that mm. complete story with each other. And then second, to see a therapist. Obviously, uh, we value that. Andy's a therapist. But, but we've been in that seat, and that has been one of the most valuable resources for us in truly growing to know each other. Um, and then number three take personality tests. Those are super fun to understand, I guess, more that, um, that nature component you're talking about, understand, understand who you are at that level. And then number four is really fun. It's to participate in your spouse's hobbies. Mm. That's, that's something that we have always pursued together is just, just knowing what each other enjoys, even if, even if I don't naturally enjoy something, being able to press in and into something that Andy really loves and see kind of experience the joy that he has there is yeah. is really kind of cool to know to know him in that way and and likewise for him with mine as well. Wow. Well, and and what I love about these, uh, at least three out of the four tips are are kind of uh, summing up ideas that we discussed in more detail during our conversation. Um, So I I thank you so much for sharing those. And of course, we'll put those in the show notes as well. Um, This has been an absolutely fascinating, invigorating, uh, emotional, for that matter, conversation. I really cannot thank you enough for uh, first of all, making time for our listeners here at The Love Portrait, but then also being so vulnerable and open and sharing your story and what you've learned through the process. We love that. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thanks so much for listening to A Love Portrait. Do let us know what you thought of the podcast by leaving a review in your favorite podcast app. And if you have any suggestions for the podcast, would like to recommend a guest, or would even like to share your relationship story on the podcast, please don't hesitate to email me, nathan at aloveportrait.com.